Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll get an update on COVID-19 as we enter another holiday travel season. Are we prepared? Well, we'll uh, discuss the outlook with Dr. Jody Guest, an epidemiologist and professor at the Rollins School of Public Health and School of Medicine at Emory uh, Emory University in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. She also serves as an advisor to the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, and has been a frequent and valued guest on Facing the Future. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and National Field Director Phil Smith join the conversation. And uh, then we'll switch gears to discuss the latest developments on the economic front. Among the topics we'll look into are the budgetary effects of higher interest costs, the Fed's latest decision to hold rates steady for now, and what some have called a Goldilocks October jobs report. So... All that's uh, in the later part of the program. First, let's uh, turn our attention to our COVID checkup. And uh, Dr. Jody Guest, welcome back to Facing the Future. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. We like to say that you are our uh, in-house epidemiologist. So uh, it's time for a time for a, a checkup here. You know, and we're aware of the impact that uh, COVID has had over the last three and a half years on the budget and the economy. So it bears uh, watching. Uh, And it almost seems like a ritual now that every year around holiday time, when people are packed together and traveling more, we get a surge in cases. First up is uh, what's the outlook for this year? Sure. So, you know, the outlook is pretty typical of what we've seen. um, And we're expecting it to look a lot like 2022. So what we would call a moderate COVID-19 season and wave coming up and a standard um, flu and RSV season. And we put the three of them together because we really want to talk about how all of them work uh, and all of them affect us. So um, not a whole lot different expected from last year. That's not necessarily great news, but it's not as bad as it could be for sure. Yeah, I've seen the I just looked back at the numbers uh, in Virginia and every year seems to have a spike in December and January. Huge. Uh, But the first two years were just like, you know, off the charts, like, you know, really, really. And then the last two years have been, um, you know, much more constrained. Or I say last year was more constrained in it. It looks like if you look at where we are now. I don't want to even call it a surge. I mean, there's an uptick in cases. And I'm just talking about the results I saw for Virginia. So, I mean, is that an indication that COVID is behaving more like a traditional uh, winter season virus? Kind of. Um, yes, we're starting to see some similarities in what it looks like in the fall. But the difference is that COVID still continues to have a summer wave as well. 
And so that's what makes it a little different than our flu and our RSV typical waves in the, in the winter. We had anticipated at the beginning that we would start to see it move um, almost exclusively into the winter season. And that has not happened. So it's kind of a two wave uh, virus at this point in time. And it's been pretty consistent now for the last two years that way. Tori, uh, let me bring you into the conversation. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, I mean, now that the the COVID emergency, that the federal emergency has been declared over, um, is it more difficult to track cases? I know that, you know, me just as a you know typical person living in, in Northern Virginia, it's a lot harder for me to find out what's happening with COVID in my community because all the places that I used to go, like the New York Times and my local, you know, county government and the state, et cetera, the data that was available before isn't being tracked anymore. So do we have a good handle on where it is and how it's performing and where should somebody like myself go to look for this information so I can make a decision? Should I wear a mask on an airplane? Can I go out to dinner? Should I, you know, sort of stay home? (laughs) Right, right. So yes, it's gotten much harder to track COVID-19 cases. And that is a combination of the public health emergency ending. It's also about the way we were starting to test prior to the end of the public health emergency. So when we all transitioned to the majority of our testing being done at home with antigen tests, we were already seeing a really big difference in the way we could track numbers of cases. So we knew that that was a huge underestimate towards the you know last year before that public health emergency ended. So we, were, we already had some problems with that. It definitely got more difficult after um, states stopped reporting to CDC. CDC is still one of the best places to look, but our metrics have completely changed. So now we've got hospitalization rates, we have percent of deaths, and we've got vaccine numbers. We have some test positivity numbers as well, but those are people that are getting tested in hospitals or going to other units where they're getting a PCR test. And we already know that's going to be a biased sample of people who are more likely to have COVID. Um, So it is not an apples to apples anymore. From here on out, it will be. So, you know, fall of 2023 should have the same sort of tracking measurements as fall of 2024. So we should get to a place where it becomes easier to compare what waves look like. But back to your real question of what do you do as a person? Partly it is, how many friends do you know who say, I don't feel very well right now, or I'm going to stay home because I have COVID. And so if your social network is talking about it, there is more of it where you are. Another metric for this, and this is a, you know, doesn't feel like a very scientific metric, but if your local pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, wherever you go is out of COVID tests, that means there's a lot of COVID going on in the, in the neighborhood that you're in. Um, and so those are kind of our newer me- measures. Our other one I will mention is our wastewater surveillance, which has been a really important um, new marker of um, that we've used during the pandemic. It had been used for some other things, but it really wasn't well socialized until COVID-19. It has been consistent and great. But currently, there is a problem because there's a contract negotiation with 400 of the wastewater plants. And, um, and so there are there is missing data there right now that hopefully will be solved soon. But that went from being a good marker to perhaps a little bit harder to watch at the moment. 
Phil. Jody, congratulations to you for the numerous awards that you've been winning over the past couple of years. It just adds to what we already knew, that the fact that you were a nationally acclaimed epidemiologist. And earlier this year... None of them is more valuable than being the Concord Coalition in-house epidemiologist. <laughs> exactly. I love that. <laughs> so earlier this year, the annual U.S. News and World Report Best Jobs Report uh, came out. And they said that this year's number one science job is epidemiology. And so uh, it goes on to define epidemiology uh, is a medical science that investigates all the factors that determine the presence or absence of diseases and disorders in the population. That last phrase is what I want to focus on, disorders in the population, because I feel like we have a lot of it right now. And that's, this is where your world and our world are really intertwined. We battle so many myths about the federal budget, and there's so many people that think they know a lot about the federal budget, and they really don't. And I know you battle this all the time. So my question is, can you remind us what some trusted sources are so that regular people, you know, everyday people like myself who you know, are busy in our day-to-day lives, where, where are the best places to go to find truly trusted sources of information? Because I, I have found a, a great ignorance detection device, and it's called Facebook. So I want to look to other places, right, to, to find good information. So right now, I would, I would say the CDC is doing a, a great job of transparent and up-to-date information. Um, the new CDC director, Dr. Um, Cohen, it's really made science communication and trustworthiness one of her top priorities. And I think she's living into that really well. She herself is a very gifted science communicator, very um, straightforward information. And she's putting out video clips on a regular basis of things that people, she wants um, the general population to know. So, you know, that's what we want. We want our hallowed institution of CDC to be the trusted resource And I think we're really seeing that. And, and, you know, so that's great news. To your comment about Facebook, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I spent a ridiculously large amount of time on Facebook talking to people about, you know, here is the accurate information. Here are all the things we don't know. And here's why we don't know them yet. Or here are the things that, you know, we're, we're questioning and wondering but Facebook is a great place to see the void filled. And in science, it's an iterative process. You know, it takes time to learn things and to be assured of what we know. And we do need to do a better job of being transparent about that. But what we need is to let that time happen and to be really forthright with what we know and what we don't know. And yet all of our friends who like to think they know about the federal budget or have become um, epidemiologists recently, you know, those are not necessarily our best sources of information about what's going on with any sort of health. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Phil Smith, and I are talking with Dr. Jody Guest of Emory University about uh, COVID-19. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Field Director, Phil Smith. And I are talking with Dr. Jody Guest, an epidemiologist at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And we're talking about uh, this year's version of 
COVID-19. Jody, have you seen any signs of variants? I mean, we always look at variants. So how is the vaccine developing? Sure. So, you know, there are a couple new um, variants that we're watching. Um, Some of them have small enough numbers that they're just something for us to be watching, but not uh, don't need to be panicked about yet. So um, the newest one that just popped up is JN.1. And by no means at this point in time, do we expect everyone to to remember all of these numbers. The vaccine, though, we do have a new vaccine out and it is a we're no longer using the term booster. It is our our new seasonal COVID-19 vaccine. And it is targeted to go after the the most common um, Omicron subvariants that were circulating this summer. And, you know, I think the disappointing news is that very few people have taken that vaccine. About 7% of adults and only um, 3%, uh, I'm sorry, 2% of children have gotten it so far in the United States. And that is tracking behind last year's booster that we had, which was a bivalent booster at that point. Uh, Tori, you, uh, you are waving your hand. You've gotten you. You're one of the seven <laughs> yeah, percent. Well, my whole family, we are all vaxxed. I mean, excellent. Well, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if the, we're talking about the vaccine uptake rate. You know, one of the consequences of the end of the federal emergency, healthcare emergency, is that these COVID vaccines are no longer free to everyone. Do you think that's having effect, or do you think people are just have COVID fatigue? I actually think it's mostly COVID fatigue. The majority of people do still have access to free or or very um, small amounts of money for these vaccines. There's been a big push with um, insurance companies are still covering it for most people. And if you're uninsured, there's still a lot of different ways to get access to these vaccines. It's more complicated. And anytime you make it more complicated, that's a problem. And that's going to um, make it more inequitable. But for the most part right now, there's a lot of vaccine available and it's not going to cost people money. So I do think it's mostly people are really over COVID-19. I, I, I wish that were true in, in kind of a uh, literal sense in terms of being the disease being over <laughs> rather than just being, quote unquote, sick of it being around. Phil. Right. Jody, I'm coming to you today from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. I had a chance to talk to some lawmakers yesterday. If they were to ask me about funding, and obviously that's what we talk about at the Concord Coalition is long-term fiscal sustainability. If money were no object, which we know it is, a lot of people think that the federal budget is infinite, but it is quite finite. Uh, But if you had to prioritize things to tell a member of Congress um, about your work and what we should be looking out for in, in future years, um, what would you suggest that I tell uh, these members of Congress that I meet with? I, I hesitate to call this a lull, but it's certainly a lull with COVID-19 compared to what it was, um, you know, the last three and a half years. What we need to do now is be practicing for the next the next big issue. And we need to be making sure our infrastructure is set up for fast delivery of whatever it is we might need. And we need a lot of pandemic preparedness. So we need that those early warning signals need to be there. So that that deep uh, commitment to the public health infrastructure of this country is what we need to see and what we were not doing well when um, COVID-19 hit. And that really set us behind from the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, you're sort of getting at this, but as a healthcare professional, uh, looking back on these years, what uh, 
what do you think the lessons are from COVID? And uh, not that I'm saying that it's over and done with, but uh, what do we get right? And, and what should we learn for the future? Yeah, so, you know, I think um, a couple things that we got right, the vaccines are remarkable and they were so much better than we anticipated. And they were so much, they were so quickly developed in Operation Warp Speed to develop them was a massive success. The communication around what that meant, not maybe not quite as good as it could have been or should have been, and it did, did so some mistrust. I think we um, we we had an undervalued, under-supported, and underemployed public health workforce at the beginning of the pandemic, and you cannot all of a sudden take on a tremendously large work um, with a pandemic if you were understaffed um, to start with. And so we didn't have our state and local health departments in a place where they could handle what was going on. And you know, so that that was a really big problem. We also had 50 different ways, at least, of putting the vaccines out. And um, so we all kind of acted like our own entity in the states. So it was really confusing about at the beginning about how to get vaccines. You know, the good news was the beginning, people wanted the vaccines, mm -hmm. um, but it would it the rollout did not happen smoothly everywhere. Um, and so we certainly need to learn about that. But I think probably the two biggest things I would say, other than the lack of public health infrastructure, is the uh, remarkable and rapid way miscommunication was spread. Um, and it did not take very many voices for those to be um, multiplied by the millions by minutes um, on social media. And that is responsible for a lot of, of deaths and a lot of sickness and including, you know, people that got long COVID. So, you know, that's a really unfortunate component of what went on. And then we already had a very inequitable healthcare system in the United States and COVID-19 good news made us talk about it more, but bad news that inequity probably further divided during this pandemic. Sorry. Jody, you've, you've, made epidemiology just awesome and fun and exciting. And uh, I was wondering if you could uh, share a little advice for, I don't know, there might be some young people who are listening here. Um, how, how do you start? How do you become an, an epidemiologist? What's the, the career path, the education path to becoming an epidemiologist? Sure. So, you know, when I'm not doing COVID-19 work, my favorite thing to do is teach. So I've got these great first semester epi students right now at Emory. Um, you need to get a master's degree um, to work in epidemiology, but you can have any undergrad degree. And so that's actually kind of the cool part. You do not have to have an undergrad in public health. You can come in and you could have an anthropology degree, a science degree, an art history degree. Like we'll take all of them um, if you've had the right kind of classes. And then, um, you know, we teach it in a master's program. So you don't have to come in with a lot of expertise because we're going to walk you through what you need to know. And it's a two-year master's in public health program. It's a phenomenal career. I have loved it. I am pretty tired for the past three and a half years, but it is, um, you know, it's good to have been able to put skills to, to use. Um, and I think as we look to our newer generations of public health professionals, what we're trying to enhance is how do you talk about science? How do you talk about um, the iterative process? How do you how do you build trust? 
And how do you work in communities in a way that is beneficial to the community and, and allows community voices to be really important in that work? You know, one thing um, I, I was thinking about is uh, you, you mentioned the vaccines and uh, how what a miracle it was that they were developed so fast. And, uh, um, you know, there are different kinds. And uh, in retrospect, do we do we have any sense of, you know, whether the more traditional route uh, was more effective than the uh, than the new ones that were developed? Uh, I mean, is there, is there some after after the fact work being done on that? Absolutely. That's being tracked. And right now, what we really don't see are there very big differences. So currently now we have two mRNA platform vaccines, and then we have one more traditional vaccine, Novavax. Novavax is actually not being taken. Um, none of them are have a great uptake right now. But Novavax has the lowest uptake, but it was also the last to be FDA approved. And so that is probably why. Um, but your question is a great one, and we are not seeing big differences in how they performed. Johnson & Johnson, which was an early vaccine that we had, we did start to see differences with that, and now you don't see that being used. And so, you know, again, that's part of what we do in science. It looks like it was just as competitive and good as the other vaccines, and once other mutations started, it wasn't as efficient with the newer mutations. But to be clear, it was good with the original wild type. And so then you drop that vaccine out and then you move forward with the other vaccines. And are the new vaccine is a new vaccine that's out there. You said it's 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 not a it's not a booster. It's a it's a new vaccine. But does that have the the, the uh, differences that you talked about? But I mean, or is it is it all the same technology? Um, so two of them, Moderna and Pfizer, are both the mRNA um platform that are used. And then Novavax is a more traditional style of vaccine. So we have kind of two different styles out there right now, um, but three different vaccines. Okay. Well, whatever they are, people should go get them. And because uh, <laughs> we're heading into that holiday season again, and uh, bikes haven't been as as bad, uh, you know, last year that they were the first couple of years, but we don't want them to get that way. So we don't. That's all that that's yeah. I just going to say that's that's all the time we have for this segment. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Jody Guest, our in-house epidemiologist, for coming back and give us a, a briefing on COVID. And uh, stay uh, stay with us for the uh, the rest of the show. We'll be right back after these short messages when we'll turn our attention to the latest economic news. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson are joining me in this segment to talk about events on Capitol Hill. We'll, we'll get an update on what's going on with the economy. But uh, first, uh, Tori, seems like we're always here, but we're in shutdown watch mode again. Here we are just uh, 10 days or so uh, or less before the next shutdown date of November 17th. So how close are they to avoding a shutdown? Nowhere near close. <laughs> as you say, <laughs> you know, we're close to November 17th, you know, and as at the time we're, we're, we're recording, you know, this, this uh, show, um, you know, the house hasn't decided what they're going to do yet. And the Senate hasn't decided what they're going to do yet. 
Um, I think it's it's at least at this point, you know, Senate Republicans are waiting for the House Republicans to go first so they can support whatever they they put on the floor in, in the Senate. Um, so but right now, you know, we're just a couple of weeks, like two weeks away from a shutdown and and I there's no paper yet. There is no paper. There's no even agreement on principles to put in paper. So and, and just to be clear, this was all supposed to be done by September 30th. I mean, when we talk about the appropriations, that was right. The, the fiscal year 2024 began on October 1st. And uh, so they had a temporary agreement that avoided a shutdown, led to the ousting of the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, because there were Democratic votes and Republican votes. So by, by bipartisan bill is, is apparently uh, a cause for the Speaker being fired these days. But <laughs> but they can't do it without it. I mean, here's the thing. Republicans in the House are trying to pass bills um, how many? I mean, where are they in that process? Just looking at what the Republicans are, are passing in their own house in the House of Representatives. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're they're making some progress. Yeah. I mean, granted, they just said they have a new speaker. Right. And I think they've managed to get one more across the line uh, recently. And then the Senate, of course, passed their their minibus, which was a, a three part, uh, a three bill uh, appropriations bill, which they'll send to to the House. But point is, I, they're they're nowhere close to, to to being finished. So you know, as I, I see it, as November seventeenth bears down on us, you know, the House and the Senate they, they basically have four broad options in front of them. You know, they they the, the House can put forward this this laddered continuing resolution, you know, with sort of alternating uh, uh, expiration dates for certain appropriations bills. Uh, they can pass pass a, a clean continuing resolution, whether it's to you know the end of the year, calendar year, or into January. Um, they can pass what I call a junked up continuing resolution, which you know funds the government, but then carries a whole bunch of other stuff with it, including you know Biden's uh, emergency supplemental spending, but maybe some border policies and some other things, you know, uh, FAA reauthorization, you know, other things that need to get done. Um, or option number four, we shut down. Before I uh, defer to Steve for a question here, that you mentioned this latter approach of like mm-hmm. rolling shutdowns. Now I've been around for a long time looking at this stuff, and <laughs> as have you. Um, I haven't seen this strategy used before. What is a, a rolling shutdown? <laughs> so th- let me preface this by saying this is in concept form only. Okay, there's been no paper. There hasn't even been a term sheet released on what they're talking about here. But the general idea is lumping together. You know, we have 12 annual appropriation bills that Congress has to pass every year. The idea of a laddered CR is to group some of them together and give them one expiration date. So let's assume, let's go like with a defense theme. So maybe the Republicans in the House pair up the defense appropriations bill with the Homeland Security bill with the military uh, construction VA uh, appropriations bill. Stitch that up into sort of a, a defense military themed uh, appropriations bill. And they say, all right, we're going to extend those programs until you know the end of January. But then we're going to take sort of domestic priorities like the health and human services bill and the interior bill and energy and water. We're going to stitch those up into their other, and a separate piece of legislation, but we're only going to extend those through to say mid-December. Okay. So you have different expiration dates for different buckets of funding. Now that might seem grand and groovy and that it gives Congress, you know, time to prioritize on on and focus on certain appropriations bills. But in, in my opinion, 
I think that just makes a shutdown more palatable. It allows, you know, your your ultra, you know, conservatives, your MAGA Republicans in the House to just object, object, object to everything. Because then instead of shutting down the whole government, you're only shutting down a portion of the government at a time, which of course gives them leverage to get the policies that they want in these appropriations bills by basically holding that portion of government hostage. So you can see, for example, you know, if you roll up the defense bill with Homeland Security Milcon VA, Senator Tuberville in the in, in Senate is holding up a lot of military promotions over the defense policy on travel out of state, away from your duty station to receive abortion services. If the defense bill is wrapped up in, you know, this this laddered CR, when that expiration date comes, that gives the the the, the conservative Republicans in the House the opportunity, you know, to, to sort of shut down, halt funding for the Defense Department until Democrats uh, concede to their uh, abortion language in the Defense Department, which would say, no, you can't use defense money, you know, federal government tax dollars to travel outside of your duty station in order to get abortion services. Well, you know, I, I think that the laddered CR is sort of cute by half, if you will. It's just a path to a more palatable way to shut down the government, have Republicans to coerce Democrats to get the policies that they want. You yes. have to assume that the White House is going to recognize that. And so presumably President Biden would veto any one of these piecemeal approaches and say, look, it's all or nothing. True. Um, That's very true. Uh, Steve? Uh, got a follow up? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, that, that was my comment. I mean, if this is really a brilliant strategy on the part of the Republicans and it's really going to give them leverage, I presume the, the the White House and the Democrats will see that. And there's no way uh, Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate or the White House would ever agree to go along with it. So, you know, they, yeah, they, it's, it seems like this, uh, the it's, the rolling shutdowns will just sort of be constant. Uh, it's kind of assures constant chaos instead of having little you know deadlines and like you say it, it may make smaller shutdowns uh palatable which uh is an interesting negotiating strategy just as an outside observer of the process it seems like it's taking a bad process and making it even worse um or but who, who gets so let's assume that the house passed you know like three laddered crs let's let's take 12 appropriations bills bundle them up into four you know a group four bills a group of three three different packages with three different delivery dates you know and if, if it if nothing gets through the the senate um and the government shuts down because we don't have a, a cr in place you know who gets blamed for the shutdown if the house has passed an anti-shutdown proposals you know three different measures containing four different bills you know who who gets the blame yeah i mean that's it's it's an interesting strategy and uh like i said i haven't seen it before um meanwhile that's talking about the regular appropriation bills there's a lot of discussion also about supplemental spending and uh, you know we've talked about that before some of the tension of the international spending and and the president even adding a uh domestic package onto that which is i guess added together now somewhere around 150 billion or something any new developments on that front? I mean, other than, you know, last week, the House passed uh, a supplemental for Israel, but they attached to it reduction in funding, uh, future funding for the Internal Revenue Service, which is perceived as a non-starter uh, in the Senate and with uh, President Biden. I think he actually, if he didn't uh, issue a veto threat 
um, I'm sure one is, is is forthcoming. I think there was an official veto threat from mm-hmm. uh, OMB on that one. Mm-hmm. And the CBO did do a score of that that showed <laughs> a uh, uh, the Congressional Budget Office yeah. um, that, that, that did confirm that th- the official scoring of that bill would actually increase the deficit because right. the IRS funding is intended to help the IRS uh, crack down on tax cheating and so hence to bring in more revenue and um, so if you cut that funding you're not going to get the revenue that would be brought in by that Mm -hmm. and uh, you know it all gets very intertwined people don't want funding for the IRS they're trying to collect taxes that are owed yeah uh, and, and the reason, and they're trying to go after the big wealthy cheats. So, you know, the the individuals, the super wealthy individuals who can hide their their money, but also you know the big corporations. And those take you know manpower, agents, you know that are trained in you know and forensic accountants. And uh, you know it's 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 not like you can hire you know a, a, a CPA off the street to do that type of work um it takes a lot of training and a lot of expertise and and a lot of those agents are 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 located on site for a lot of these major employers um and so without that funding they they can't you know collect those those revenues so it, that's the one thing that just befuddles me i mean if republicans don't want to raise taxes okay i get it no one likes to pay taxes but at least let's make it let, let's collect the ones that are owed Right. So I just I don't understand the Republican position on gutting the IRS because it just it, it just it just increases the deficit. It just makes our, our fiscal situation worse. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are talking about events in Washington. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm here with Tori Gorman, Concord's Policy Director, and Steve Robinson, our Chief Economist. And in this segment, I'm going to turn to Steve to sort out some uh, news on the economy. Uh, we had last week, we had a big, uh, a couple of big numbers. The jobs report came out. It was relatively modest job uh, growth down from pr- prior months, but you know, pre-pandemic, it would have seemed like a, a pretty decent jobs report, about 150,000 jobs. So, you know, do you interpret that as a slowdown or is that like, well, yeah, things are sort of going back to normal. At the same time, the Fed decided again to hold interest rates where they were. So not another, a lot of people thought uh, earlier in the year that there would be another hike in the federal funds rate by the end of the year. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. So on the one hand, we look kind of like that soft landing everybody's trying to predict, uh, everybody's trying to hit is uh, might be happening. But we also had a really buoyant third quarter on uh, economic growth that uh, would indicate that maybe there's still some inflationary pressure. And inflation is, you know, has not come down to the Fed's level. So I guess you could say there are a lot of mixed signals in the economy. Um, Steve, how do you interpret the tea leaves? Uh, cloudy. Yeah, no, I mean, as you're pointing out, I mean, there there are a lot of contrary signals that, that, that which of course, that, that accounts for the Fed's decision to, to hold, hold uh, rates where they are. Uh, as you suggested, people were thinking they might raise rates again. Uh, I think now the markets are betting that they're done raising interest rates, but I, I think that remains to be seen. 
you know, when you have really strong GDP growth in the, in the third quarter, that suggests the economy is strong, but then you have a slowdown in, in the employment, uh, like say 150,000 jobs last month, and the unemployment rate actually ticked up just a bit. So, you know, that suggests there's some soft going on. I think we, we were talking during the break, consumer spending is largely what was driving the, the GDP growth, but uh, personal income had gone down, which suggests that the people are starting to dig into their savings. And obviously that's not sustainable. You can only, if you're spending more than you're taking in and you start drawing down savings, you can't can't keep that going for very long. So, you know, it, it's it's clearly a clouded, uh, clearly a cloudy uh, outlook right now. You know, you've got too many contrary signals for the Fed to 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 make a definitive case for either raising rates or for uh, holding them as they are. I guess the uh, the CPI numbers will come out next week for for October, and we'll see you know what progress we're making on the inflation front. I mean, ultimately the the Fed's job uh, is to to get inflation back to their target. They have a two percent inflation target, and inflation has been running, you know, in the three and a half to 4% range. So they clearly have a ways to go if they want to hit their target. And their only tool to achieve that is to continue to push interest rates up, or at least hold them at a higher level than what uh, what a lot of the market participants would maybe prefer to see. Yeah, I was going to, you know, think about uh, some of the pressures that are still on uh, federal interest rates, it, you know, the, the Fed has been holding tight, but let me bring in a different dynamic. I mean, the uh, the government is having to issue a great deal of debt, refinance a great deal of debt, because much of it is held short term. Some of our usual buyers abroad, Japan, China, seem to have cut back on their purchases. Is there going to be pressure on higher interest rates on our debt uh, because of well, maybe some questions about demand for it. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually looked at the data on uh, foreign holdings of, of federal debt. I mean, they uh, foreign central banks and foreign investors hold uh, roughly a quarter of, of our publicly held debt. And we have seen, now there's a bit of a lag, the treasury data on who holds our debt. Uh, I think the latest data is maybe through August of this summer. And it is true, China and Japan and Great Britain are the three biggest buyers of government securities. And we've seen a drop. I mean, both China and Japan were holding over a trillion dollars each in federal securities. And those numbers have both come down by about 200, 200 billion each. So they're now in the neighborhood of 800 billion. But overall, other foreign borrowers have stepped up and filled the gap. So the total amount held by foreign uh, investors is about 7.7 .7 trillion now, which is what it was, you know, about a year ago. So, you know, there there seem right now to be other buyers who are willing to to step in. But, you know, if China and and Japan continue to to let their holdings roll over, or I should say, roll off, and they don't renew them, you know, if that if that is indicator of of a further contagion that other foreign investors are gonna gonna do the same, clearly that's a problem. And of course, on top of that. You've got the Federal Reserve, you know, they're rolling off their balance sheet and they've they've come down the, the peak at the Fed. They were holding about 5.8 trillion in government securities and they're now down to about 4.9. So they've rolled off almost a trillion. And of course, that puts pressure on interest rates because, you know, it's sort of 
counterintuitive. You know, normally when you increase the supply of something, the price should fall. And you see, oh, well, the price falls, that means it's cheaper. But when you're talking about government securities, when the government increases the demand um, and the price falls, what that means is that the interest rate goes up. So prices and the price of securities and the interest rates are, you know, they move in opposite directions. And so, you know, that's why we've seen, you know, just a week ago, uh, the 10-year bond rate reached 5% for the first time since 2007. And so you're seeing this pressure uh, to, to raise interest rates, uh, basically attract uh, investors to continue to buy the buy uh, government securities. You know, I think what we've seen in the past, even though we're not adding to the debt as fast as we were, you know, during the pandemic, uh, you've got this huge amount of debt. I mean, there's $25 trillion in government securities and you know, thirty percent of that's going to get rolled over within the next twelve months, and eighty percent of that will get rolled over in the next ten years. And to continue to roll that over year after year after year, you know, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the market. And if there's any reason for for market participants to have some doubt about the government's commitment and ability to, you know, maintain maintain some sense of, of fiscal responsibility. That that's when you have a financial crisis. Is markets lose faith in in the uh, in the government, um, and they demand higher interest payments as compensation for the risk. And you know, I, I don't. You know, we're not there yet, and, and you know, that's not what we're seeing. I mean, basically, you know, the, the higher rates right now are, are a combination of you know both the Fed policy and you know the fact that inflation is higher. But you know, you get what's called a risk premium, which means market participants are, you know, uncertain about the risk of the securities, and that gets added on top of whatever the inflation premium is, and that's when you know that's when you see interest rates really get uh, potentially out of control. Sure, you want to weigh in on this uh, this mixed signal business? Well, I, I was just going to say, as as a you know a, a, a fiscal hawk and, and budget watcher. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the the movement in interest rates and the amount of debt that we've racked up has me concerned about the uh, the budgetary expense for net interest costs. Kent Smetters at uh, Penn Wharton was out this morning saying that uh, our net interest expense is going to exceed the defense budget in a couple of years. You know, Steve, do you think that's 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 plausible? And and my second question, Steve, is is I get this question all the time, and I, I know you've got some thoughts on this. Uh, you know, why didn't the the Treasury lock in low interest rates, you know, two or three years ago before this spike? Yeah, I mean, cl- clearly rising interest rates are a problem. I mean, when you when you have, you know, 25 or 30 trillion dollars worth of debt outstanding, you know, every 1% interest rate increase is, is an extra 300 billion dollars. So, you know, if you have a 5% interest rate rather than a 1% interest rate, the difference is 300 billion in annual interest costs or one and a half trillion in annual interest costs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, clearly, you know, if interest rates remain high, we'll be spending more on interest than any other item in the federal budget, both defense or uh, social security or Medicare or anything else. I mean, that becomes, you know, what's basically driving, you know, higher spending. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, normally in the real world, if interest rates are low, people, for example, all across the the housing market, I mean, everybody's got a mortgage. And when interest rates dropped to 3%, everybody was running to refinance their 30-year mortgage so they could lock in that 3% interest rate. It's interesting, the federal government has never chosen to do that. I mean, you know, two years ago, 10-year bonds were 2%. Had we locked in all of the debt at 2%, uh, we wouldn't be where we are now, where 
both short-term and long-term rates are all at 5%. So we're going to see debt rolling over, you know, at 5% rather than than locked in at 2%. You know, the, the government has never, I mean, you go look throughout history, and there's almost no period of time in which the government locked in a substantial portion of its debt at, at high at, at longer term interest rates when they were low, because the assumption is short term rates are always lower are almost always lower. And the government is much more comfortable rolling over short term debt. And I think the financial markets are much more interested in holding short term debt. So the question is, would there be a market? In other words, if the government suddenly announced tomorrow that, yeah, we're going to lock in all of our debt at a long-term rate, the question is, what would that do to the rates? I mean, it might be that, you know, okay, interest rates are 2% and we're not really using that 2% because we're financing things short-term. If we said we're going to, you know, refinance at long-term rates, it's not clear that the interest rate wouldn't go up in response to the change in the in the refinancing strategy. And I think that's always been one of the big concerns. That's all the time we have for this week. You've been listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in again next week when uh, Tori and Steve and I will be back with another edition of Facing the Future. 